What's up, everyone? This is the Close In Podcast with Chloe Clark, and today I'm here with Ashley Nicole Moss, sports journalist and co-host of iHeartRadio's Greek Zone on 940 Wins. So welcome to the podcast. How are we feeling? Me. So we're getting into different aspects of your career thus far, but to start us off, let's go way back. You know, I feel like many people might not know that you began with acting. So where did that interest in acting stem from? Um, so I grew up in New York, if people couldn't tell, and New York is, um, as a kid, it was just, it was a big deal, like being in plays and growing up around Broadway, and, um, you know, I just developed, like, a love for it really early, and I think that's kind of where my love of being in front of the camera came. Um, with acting, though, comes a lot of uh, grueling auditions and rejection. I think I started it so young that I really didn't have the mindset and the discipline needed to really like develop it. Mm -hmm. So I probably stopped acting when I was like 13, 14. And, um, that's kind of where my love of sports picked up and where my desire to be in journalism kind of began. So when one door closed, another one opened essentially. Okay. And now I read that you were, you said that you're initially like shy and introverted, yeah. which I find to be interesting because, you know, you're taking on a field that you have to be in front of the camera, outgoing, talk to people. So what fulfillment did, you know, broadcasting and sports bring to you to be like, you know, I need to step out of, I need to break out of my shell. Um, this is what I'm going to be pursuing. It's really weird because I still am introverted. It's kind of like when I'm in front of the camera though, I don't know if it's because I'm focused on a task or if it's because it's just like such a passion of mine, but it's almost like a different persona. You know how Beyonce has like Sasha Fierce and then there's Beyonce. Right. I kind of like have that same thing when I'm in front of the camera, it's like a different version of who I am. And then when it's like, all right, cut, it's like I'm back to like the mm -hmm. shy like kind of just want to stick to the people I know kind of girl so um it never really went away it just I learned to kind of turn it on and off and I think even as a kid um I was the girl who I was really really shy like before the camera started rolling or before I had to audition and then I was just able to turn it on and that's still something I can do today like I can be in an environment of people I don't know anybody be super shy before I have to give like a speech or before I have to go on camera. And then the minute I have to do what I have to do, it's like, I can just switch it. And then I kind of go back into like my shell. Yeah. So it's just a matter of kind of um, maneuvering your personality and figuring out how you can kind of make that persona something for you. Yeah. And I feel like being able to turn it on is something that you can gain from acting. And I relate to what you say completely because I'm naturally, like my family knows, I'm naturally introverted and shy, but I grew up dancing my whole life and I was able to, you know, perform on stage without a problem. And they'd be like, how, how do you like do that in front of thousands of people, but like you're shy with everyone else. So I feel like that's such an asset to be able to, you know, know how to perform and turn it on and off. But you talk about how you switch over to sports, um, later on so who or what played a role in pursuing and pushing forward that passion so i always played sports at the school i was a three-sport athlete as a basketball volleyball and then also soccer 
Um, but my dad really gets the credit for helping to develop my love of sports. So for me in the beginning, when I was probably around 13, 14, it was just about watching it. It wasn't really about necessarily understanding. It was just a matter of, you know, being with him and, and bonding with him and, and liking the whole spectacle of sports. But it wasn't until I got into high school where I really started getting into the logistics, the trades, the actual plays. And I remember getting into a debate with one of the guys at school. I think he was either on the basketball or football team, one of them. And really being able to go like toe to toe with him and thinking to myself, okay, so I'm kind of good at this. Like this is something, and like I enjoyed it. It wasn't like something where I felt like I was arguing and I didn't really care about the topic that I really enjoyed like getting into this banter with him, this debate. And from there, it was just, I really wanted to take it and see how far I can go with it. And it turned to something that I was really passionate about, almost obsessed with. And um, till this day, it's still the same thing. I love sports. I love the direction sports is going. I love not only the logistics of the actual game, the inner workings of trades and telling stories about athletes, about who they are as people, not just who we see them on the field or on the court. And um, yeah, it just grew from the love of actually watching the game and it just developed from there. Yeah, it's cool because you had that perspective of viewing the game. Like, yes, you were you might have been involved in it a little bit in high school playing the sport, but having that different perspective and different mindset from the spectator view um, definitely is something that you can add on top of knowing the knowledge and logistics. But then moving on, um, so following high school, you moved from New York to Florida for college at Florida Atlantic University. Um, so I must ask, who who's your team? Because you're from New York. <laughs> <laughs> My teams are, so outside of football, I'm a New York girl. So I'm a Knicks fan and I'm a Yankees fan, diehard. Mm-hmm. Um, for both but my football team is the Dallas Cowboys and every time I tell somebody that like you're from New York and you're a Cowboys yeah. fan <laughs> my dad is a diehard Cowboys fan um the year I was born in 93 we won the Super Bowl one of many Super Bowls and um I just grew up watching the Cowboys we didn't play any Giants games in my house unless mm-hmm. they were Cowboys so I didn't really have an opportunity to develop a fandom for a team that was not Dallas. Um, It was kind of pushed upon me. And, you know, till the, currently at this stage of my life, I am not switching over teams anytime soon. I'm a diehard Cowboys fan, um, win, lose, or tie. Mm -hmm. And, um, but yeah, I, I didn't really have a choice. Just like being against me, I didn't really have a choice with that either. So but you're loyal. You're sticking with it. I'm loyal. Good, bad, indifferent. I'm there. Yeah. So again, with New York, let's take a second to talk about this in this segment I call facts or cap. So basically true or false, but I'm going to name some stereotypes about New York and let me know. (laughs) First one, New Yorkers are rude. Okay. So that's kind of in the middle. When we're not rude, we're just very direct. And I think that a lot of people find that to be rude. I think New Yorkers, people have to understand you're in a city that is constantly moving. Mm-hmm. You know, people are in a rush to go everywhere. People are in a rush to do things. 
So you don't really have time to kind of beat around the bush. You don't have time to kind of have these long drawn out conversations. It's kind of like, what do you want? What do you need? Get to the point. Yeah. And New Yorkers also, they're not people who hold their tongue. You know, there are some people who are a little bit more um, politically correct, or maybe they have more Southern charm, or, you know, they're just kind of, they know what not to say. Things New Yorkers are very direct. They're going to tell you, this is what it is. If you don't like it, oh, well, if you like mm -hmm. it, cool. So that can be, it can come across as rude, but mm -hmm. we never mean it to be rude. It's just embedded in us from a very young yeah. age. Yeah. Okay. Well, you answered my second one. I was going to say New Yorkers are always in a rush. And so you. 100%. 100%. We just, you know, we're very impatient people too, because, mm -hmm. you know, um, and that's the beautiful thing about New York. There's not a city in this country that moves at the pace New York does. I mean, if even if you look at like the biggest cities in this country, Houston, LA, Miami, yeah. um, Chicago, it's a different type of speed in New York. So we are very um, impatient with things that are anything other than that yeah. speed. You know, for me, when I came down here for college, I used to get frustrated at how long it was taking for me to like get to a cashier. I was like, what is taking so long? Like, hurry up. So <laughs> kind of learn to kind of dial that back a little bit. But even I get to like, the point where somebody has to tell me it's only been three minutes. I was like, it's three minutes too long. Like, hurry this up. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, so the next one, the New York City subway is confusing. It can be. Um, it's definitely gotten easier, though, than when I was a kid. Okay. Um, but it can definitely be confusing. But it's one of those things, it's kind of like riding a bike. Once you know it, you'll mm -hmm. never forget it. Like, okay. Even if you like leave and you're not there for like 10 years, you come back, it comes back to you like that. So it's one of those things. If you learn it once, you never have to learn it again. Yeah. So That's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So next one, New York City is dirty. It's pretty dirty. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, mean, I can't even like say, oh, it's good. It's, you yeah. know, there's millions of people on right. one, you know, so it's bound to be a little grungy. Um, it's not the dirtiest of places I've been, but I mean, if you yeah. come from a city like Miami or, you know, South Carolina or somewhere where there's like scenic and, and, you know, tropical or, you know, just nice views and stuff, you go to New York and grossed out. So, I mean, I can yeah. get it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then last one, New Yorkers only wear black. And I see you're wearing black, but... <laughs> You know what? That's actually really funny. I've actually never thought about that, but I think I would say we don't only wear black, but I think for the most part, you'll catch us in yeah. black. One, it's easy. Two, it's when you're in a city that is, you know, the Northeast. So like you, it's cold a lot of the time. Black's mm -hmm. always a safe go-to. Right. You know, there's a short window of time in Europe where you can actually wear like summer and spring clothes because mm -hmm. it's cold up until like April. I mean, global warming has things a little different now, but yeah. for the most part, I mean, it's still snowing in April. So you don't really have an option Not to wear options, yeah. and neon green and blue. And right. you try to wear white, but if you're walking through the city, it might be gray by the end of the day. So, I mean, black's always a safe yeah. go-to. More than anyone else, but we wear it a lot. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs>
Okay, so next let's get into some New York slang. Um, I'm gonna list some that I found online. So you can tell me like a definition or we use it in a sentence, however. First one is brick. It's just cold, but it's a different type of cold. Like it's the type of cold that sends chills through your body where you can't even move. Like I'm talking like 20 degrees or lower is brick, yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I can't even because I live in LA, so I can't imagine. And a yeah. friend of mine, he's from the DMV, and the first time I heard him use brick, I was like, "What is that?" <laughs> yeah, there's cold, and then there's brick. If it's brick, it's basically just stay indoors, like it's freezing outside. <laughs> yeah. Next one, tight. You're just upset. You're mad. Someone pissed you off. Mm-hmm. So tight. Um, in New York, we also say Aggie. It's the same thing. Like you're yeah. aggravated, you're just upset. So. <laughs> Spaz. It's one of my favorite words ever. It's also <laughs> popping up. Like you, you're gonna spaz out. You're gonna flip out. You're gonna lose it. Um, pop off is probably my favorite, but they mean the yeah. same thing. <laughs> yeah, Cardi B loves a good pop off too. Yeah. But yes, yeah, spaz pop off. Is <laughs> Yeah. It's not a good thing. Don't ever get someone to spaz on you. It's not fun. <laughs> okay, this one's kind of been universal now. Dead ass. Yeah, dead ass just means fact. Like, <laughs> serious. Um, it's just 100% true or it's 100% you mean it. You're, you're dead ass, yeah. Next one, bugging. You're tripping out. Um, <laughs> just, you're doing the most. Like, you're walling. Like bugging is bugging's actually from my parents' day. That's just a word okay. that's in New York for, like ever. But yeah, bugging just means like you tripping and you tripping heavy. Yeah. What about OD? OD means overdone. It's just an abbreviated version of it or overdue. It's just you're doing the most. Like yeah. it's OD. You're either doing the most or a situation's doing the most or like something's doing the most. It's just you're just OD. Like you just need to bring it on down. <laughs> okay. Bodega. So bodega is a classic, classic staple in New York culture. It's a corner store, essentially. Um, that's the easiest way I can put it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a type of corner store you can find everything from soap to uh, soda, to toilet paper, <laughs> to candy, to chopped cheese, which is my favorite. Um, and chopped cheese, for people who don't know, is essentially, if you think of a grilled cheese, but it can have like beef in it, lettuce, tomato, and they cook it in a bodega, like on a flat top grill, and you can only get them in New York. And it's a, it's a staple. It's like a delicacy, if you will, mm-hmm. <laughs> New Yorker. <laughs> um that's just like just ours but um yeah bodega is and it's a special thing and you're you got bodega cats sometimes that cats mm-hmm. that live in there and it's it's a special thing in new york but essentially it's a corner store yeah okay sells it all <laughs> <laughs> and then the last one is your so your <laughs> is basically like what's up like it's it's like a calling so it's you know <laughs> they used to do the bird call yeah so like like that would like warn people that someone was in the neighborhood but you're just like a way of saying like what's up i'm here what's good mm-hmm. um yell you're from across the street you can yell you're directly mm-hmm. you can say you're to somebody like who's right in front of your face you can say you're to a bunch of people just basically means like what's up what's good i'm here mm-hmm. hey 
just some more, you know, again, shout out to Desu Sumero for, for yes. letting everybody know about our little secret, yeah. So I got to ask you, do you be wearing Tim's? Of course. Yep. I got my first pair of Tim's when I was, let's say, six. <laughs> like, there was a point in time where, I mean, I don't have them anymore. I grew them, but I was a point in time I had pink Tim's, like Cameron had in one of his yep. videos with Dipset. Um, I had baby blue Tim's. I have, well, I still have them. I have black ones, and of course, the classic wheats, the butters, the classic mm-hmm. color everyone sees, that tannish color. Yeah. Yeah, Tim's are a staple. And contrary to what anyone believes, you can wear them any time of year. Like, any time of year. In New York, though. Because the funny thing is, I see people at school, they, they'll pull up to class in some Tim's, and I'm like, we're in L.A., it's 80 degrees. Like, what's the need for you to be? So I've been guilty of that. I've, um, <laughs> when, especially when I first moved down here, I was wearing Tim's. I remember, now Miami gets hot starting March, April, um, mm-hmm. and I was wearing Tim's. And I remember one of my friends was like, Yo, what are you like? It's yeah. 90, 80 degrees out here. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> it's something like I had to like adjust to. I mean, yeah. I still wear them when we, when the winter comes around here, I'm throwing them on. I always get a fresh pair like every yeah. couple of years. Um, but I had to like stop wearing them in like 85 degree weather. Mm-hmm. It just looked ridiculous. Like her, I looked, people are gonna be looking at her like I look dumb. Like, where are you from? Like you right. yeah. So we talk about this culture that New York has. How has it shaped you as an individual? I think New York is um there's something special about girls who are from New York. And I think for me it made me tough. Like and sometimes maybe a little bit too tough. Um, I think I've definitely struggled with finding that balance because like I said, New Yorkers, if you're not familiar with people from the Northeast, if you're not from New York, you can find the um, personality a little bit aggressive. You can find it a little bit um, over the top, a little bit rough around the edges. And that sometimes rubs people the wrong way. And I've had friends who I'm no longer friends with you know, and that was a big thing because they did not understand, you know, my personality. They didn't understand my slime. They didn't understand my sense of humor. And my, all of those things are very much tied to the fact that I am a true New York girl. And I think that um, it, outside of it making you different and a character, if you will, and, and just like adding some flavor and some flair to you, I think also it, it instilled in me the importance of being a hustler. I think um, coming from a city of hustlers and coming from, you know, the city where dreams come true and people all over the world come to New York to try to make it in some aspect, whatever that make it means to them. And I think for me growing up around that and seeing it from such a young age and going to Times Square and seeing those massive billboards and the bright lights and, and having it. Um, in my face every day knowing that like there's a that could be me I can do that I can if I can see it I can do it and um it it just instilled that hunger and that drive and that ambition in me and it's an ambition that I wouldn't change I know sometimes it can maybe like I said people may say wow it's intense like that's that's heavy but you know I think it's the greatest gift that I could ever have been given is to be 
born and raised in a city like New York. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Empire state of mind as exactly. You know? So be, besides, we talked about that difference with New York and moving to Florida. There's the difference in um, speed and how things move. Was there any other culture shock that you experienced? I mean, out, definitely the weather threw me off. I'm not going to lie. Like it was, Miami is one of those places that I think people who don't live here um, can't understand it. Now, if you're from here, you'll never know the difference. But if you've lived someplace else and you've moved here, it's very, um, it's weird, like, waking up every day, and it's the same in terms of weather. So, like, in New York, you go through seasons. You know, one day you wake up, and it's, like, 20 degrees outside. It's brick. You know what I'm saying? And then the next day, it could be, like, 40. And, you know, you get differences. And then the seasons come around. It goes fall, winter, spring, a little bit of summer. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, we really have, like, I, I won't even call it winter, fall and yeah. summer. And you can wake up every single day and it's 85 degrees. It's wow. 85 degrees. It's 85 degrees. Maybe you get a little sun sh shower every okay. now and then, a little rainstorm, especially in the summer. But it's the same. And I think um, that was a big shock for me. I think my first Christmas was a big shock for me. <laughs> it, it wasn't cold. Like I looked outside my window and there were palm trees. <laughs> um, so it was definitely a culture shock. And to be honest, I still haven't gotten adjusted to it. Um, it's still, whenever I like get on a plane and I go to New York and I have to get on a plane and come back, it throws me off because I feel <laughs> like I'm coming. It's almost like I'm on a never ending vacation here. And mm -hmm. I feel like yeah. I'm waiting for the moment where I'm like, okay, got to go back home to New York. And then when I get on the plane and then I have to come back to Miami, it's, it's weird. It still hasn't, um, set to me, it doesn't settle to me rather that like I live here, <laughs> like this is where I live. So yeah. yeah, it's it's still weird, still an adjustment period. That's funny. Yeah, I feel like a lot of people go, oh, I want to live in Miami. Yeah, I promise it's not. I don't think Miami is a place that people should like live in. I feel like it's like a vacation spot. Maybe you live mm -hmm. here for a couple months out of the year, but you kind of go else you go back to like LA or you go back to New York or Chicago or that's home home in Miami yeah. like vacation home vacation. actually living in Miami is just not the same thing <laughs> I'm sorry <laughs> yeah it's not so then you went to Florida Atlantic University was that like one of your dream schools or why did you choose that college was that in your plan it actually wasn't so I didn't do the best in high school <laughs> um <laughs> I think after sophomore year, I kind of, um, I just, you know, I was ready to go. Like, I was ready yeah. to get out. And I think also, um, you know, senior year came around and I don't think I applied myself like I should have, especially like in subjects that weren't my strongest, like math. And because of that, I think, you know, I could have done a lot better on like SATs and ACTs. I mean, I graduated with a 3.0 from high school, but I could have done better. I mean, looking at how I did in college, I graduated with a 3.8. So I know I had the potential to do it. I just didn't apply myself. So my choices of schools weren't um, what I had envisioned for them to be. You know, I had dreams of going to places like, you know, USC or UM and, um, you know, my, my scores wouldn't allow that. So for me, um, 
I did get into like schools like UGA and things like that I was able to get into but it's still Georgia was just like "Mm, I don't right I don't know um Florida was a place that I was somewhat familiar with especially South Florida and um, my parents were actually relocating had relocated so it was like you know I don't know if I was 100 percent um, ready to be away from them 100%. I mean, away at school, yes, but then close by. So it just made sense. And um, if I was going to go somewhere for college that was different, South Florida was a good pick. So, Of course. So what's your thoughts on graduate school? Because I know that's a big, you know, conflict for many college students thinking about that next step. So I debated grad school. Um, I think after I had graduated college, I went straight to work um, at NBC. And when NBC was, when the show I was working on was towards its end, I was thinking, okay, so I don't have another job lined up. Maybe I should just go back to school. Like maybe that will help me. Grad school is one of those things where if you're in a career path where you think it would be beneficial, like I would say, if you're say in a business, um, you know, you're a business major and you want to go to business grad school and kind of explore, expand your horizons or expand your knowledge rather in other forms of business. Yes. I think for things like journalism in a career that's heavily, um, based on connections and based on networking and based on not necessarily always what you know, but who you know. I don't think grad school is necessarily something that can help you more at that. Um, Of course, everybody's different. I mean, if you have a chance to go to like Syracuse and go to grad school at at that prestigious program, take it if it's something that you just want to have. But I don't know if they're um have been proven numbers that it helps you more than just going and doing your four years Mm -hmm. I think that's everyone's individual experience their individual journey um but definitely research it I wouldn't like make yourself go broke trying to go there you know what I mean if you're financially able to go to grad school and something that you think is really going to help you be beneficial do it but if you have to take out all these loans and you're going to have to end up paying loans back and I would try your luck in like the real world and see how far you can get but you can always go back to grad school it's not going anywhere you can always go back to school um but don't dig yourself in a hole before you have a chance to really see what's out there you know Yeah, that's very true. And you emphasize the need for connections and um, networking, which I think is a very big tool that schools don't necessarily instill. It has to be like within. But for your experience in college, you got your BA in multimedia journalism. So choosing your major, what was that? How were you so clear on specifically multimedia journalism? Well, FAU, they have a really good program because they understand that journalism is not the journalism of, you know, the Watergate scandal and the Pentagon Papers and not even the journalism from 20 years ago. Um, It's a different type of journalism and they know traditional journalism is dying and it's not the same. People aren't, you know, subscribing to newspapers like they used to. You don't have the newspapers delivered on your porch 
every, you know, Sunday and, you know, your dad's sitting down there reading it. And um, they know it's a lot more internet-based. It's a lot more web-based in terms of videos and blogs and um, YouTube channels and um, short Instagram stories. And they know it's changing and streaming services, things like that. So at FAU, they were really... um, they were really good at teaching the different types of journalism. So of course I learned traditional journalism. I learned about the Pentagon Papers. I learned how to write for a newspaper. Um, I learned how to do traditional journalism work, you know, tape recorder and all, but I also learned video production. I learned Final Cut Pro. Um, I learned blog writing. I learned um, reporting via video. I learned reporting via radio. So it was just a multi-faceted program that I think was so beneficial for me. And it was something that was more than I even thought it could be, but they only offer multimedia journalism at FAU because they know. So it was a great program for me. I think that's awesome because as you mentioned, it's what you learned is multifaceted and, you know, I'm taking journalism classes right now and it's more like towards that addition, traditional, um, aspect that you mentioned and I'm like okay where's the the media where where does the media come in and all that but during your freshman and sophomore year how did you kind of adjust to college and finding you know where your place would be and in your niche and you know just your first steps in journalism I always knew I wanted to go to school for journalism um I think I decided that probably my sophomore year of high school so for me, it was more about getting all of those, you know, the ridiculous prerequisite and general education classes out of the way so I can like get to it. But I think also um, what I did was I started learning right away. So I actually in high school took a bunch of video production classes and learned Final Cut. This was on the old system, Final Cut, before they updated it. But um, I just kept those skills going so that when I got to those classes, those video production classes and things like that, I could really just build on that foundation and get even better. Um, But I knew already it was, it wasn't something that um, I had to think about. It was something that I was just ready to do. And unfortunately you can't start that till junior year. Mm -hmm. I knew, and it was just about kind of enjoying the college experience for the first two years and doing what I had to do with those classes because I knew junior and senior year, I was playing no games. It was just focusing in. So freshman and sophomore is when I really did my college experience. Yeah. Um, junior and senior year is really when I got to work. Yeah. Okay. So then junior year, what was like a breakthrough moment for you in setting your feet in the field? I think for me was I landed an internship with, SFL TV, which is the CW affiliate down here. And I landed that internship, I want to say towards the second half of my junior year. And I did that from the second half of my junior year to the first half of senior year. So it was a relatively long um, internship. And it was my first time being on television, like, consistently so it was initially it was supposed to be like a production assistant um behind the scenes type of internship but my internship boss at the time got ill and had to step away and he was the only host of the show 
um, of the network rather. And the other people were strictly videographers. So they had no experience in front of the camera. And I had a little bit, obviously, from being in school and acting and things like that. So they came to me and they were like, hey, we need you to do this. Can you do it? At the time, I was like, what? I want to say it was 20 years old. Um, I was like, yeah, sure, I can do it. Like, in the back of my head, I was like, can I do this? And it was just kind of like that scenario where, like, someone throws you in the pool and you have to either sink or swim. <laughs> and I had to swim. And it was a learning experience. I learned quick on my feet. I had to learn as I was going. There was no course of like, okay, this is what it is. It was literally, I was there for a month and a half, I think, one minute behind the computer, writing blog stories. And then next, it was like, all right, you're in front of the camera for like nine months. So it was, it was um, my first real taste of what it was like, like being in front of the camera consistently and watching myself back on TV was cool. And so that was, um, that was the first thing. And like having my classmates seeing me like, oh, I saw you on TV yesterday. Yeah. yeah, so that was fun. That was a fun experience to have while still in school. You got to always stay ready. Yeah, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. That's a hundred percent true. Yeah. So then after that role, what led you into other experiences and developments in your career? So after my, in- towards my, the end of my internship, um, my boss had a relationship with Joy Taylor, who was Jason Taylor's um, little sister. She's also on um, Fox Sports now. And she had been part of a show called Generation Next, which was tied to NBC. It was a youth football program, basically, um, that aired on Generation Next primetime Sunday nights. And I wanted to be part of it because at the time, I mean, she still is, but at the time, um, she, I think, was on Undisputed or she was on TV or she was on radio or something like that. And I had been following her career, obviously, because she's from here and things like that. And um, I also know that MJ, who's now at the NFL Network, was also on the show. A friend of mine, Amina Smith, was on the show. And they all were doing really like, amazing things. And I was like, okay, so this obviously works. Like, it's obviously a good foundation to have. I asked my boss to reach out to Joy, get the contact information of who was in charge of Generation Next. I reached out to him. I said, hey, I'm on the verge of graduating college. I'm finishing my internship here. I would love to like get a chance to send you some stuff. Mind you, the stuff that I sent him was terrible. But in terms of production value, it was terrible. In terms of how I looked, it was terrible. In terms of where I am now and how I am able to deliver and my um, inflections and things like that, it was terrible. Um, at the time, I thought it was great. I was like, oh, this is gonna be, this is amazing. He saw something in me and he brought me in. We had an audition. We had a conversation. And next thing I know, I was part of the show. And I was there for two and a half years before the show ended. So I came on the tail end of the show. And um, yeah, the rest kind of just happened after that. But that was after my internship. That was my next big um, break, if you will. Yeah. So then what motivated you at such a young age to put yourself out there, not afraid to ask for connections? 
I think again, it's that New York thing. I knew, you know, I had to hustle. I knew no one was going to give it to me. Um, I didn't have like a famous last name. I didn't have a famous family. I didn't come from, you know, a well-connected family. I, you know, it's, I'm the first in my family to pursue this kind of career. So I knew it was up to me to make whatever I wanted to happen, happen. And um, I had a good relationship with my boss at my internship and I felt comfortable asking him. And I thought in the back of my mind, the worst they can say is no. Like the worst he can say is, oh, I can't get the contact for you. And I would figure out another way to do it. You know, I even, I had followed them on Twitter. So I was prepared to DM him if I had to, if that didn't work. And um, I was going to figure out how to make it happen. And just like I did, you know, just like I've done with everything since then in my life, you know, I'm, there's more ways, there's more than one way to get to the same destination. And if one way doesn't work, then I just, all that means to me is just, I just have to figure out another way to do it. And that's kind of always been my philosophy. So I was, it was going to happen regardless. I just had to figure out exactly how yeah. it was going to happen. Yeah. The least you can do is try and just put yourself out. A hundred percent. So you, during that early stage, you reported at the Orange Bowls mm-hmm. and the Godfather, Pat, Pat Riley. So yeah. what was that like for you? And how do you pre- prepare for certain interviews with, you know, big names like Pat Riley? So the Pat Riley interview was actually sprung on me last minute. So um, <laughs> we had done the Orange Bowl and stuff. You know, you prepare for that. You know what teams are going to be in there. You go, you, know, you get the, the packets, the press packets and the team packets. And you're, you, it's easy to do research for things like that and watch film. Pat Riley was receiving an award. And I was there covering the award show. A bunch of other like sports figures were going to be there. And um, Pat Riley was the honoree, but we didn't know if we were going to be able to secure an interview with him. Every media outlet that was there wanted Pat Riley with obviously, with obvious reason. We're in Miami. It's Pat Riley. Like it's obvious everybody wants a piece of him. So I was told, you know, we're going to try to get him, but don't get your hopes up. So I think we're sitting there, we're sitting there, we're waiting for his arrival. We had already done a bunch of interviews with a bunch of other people that were there. And he walks in and it's just like, everybody floods. The cameramen are flooding, you know, reporters are flooding. And um, he's doing interview after interview after interview after interview. And I'm told to just wait because, you know, the the producer was going to go ahead and handle it. He had to have been, he had to have done like five or six or interviews at that point. He comes back and says, all right, so we have two minutes with Pat Riley. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I had no questions prepared. I had nothing prepared. Um, I just, you know, luckily for me, I'm always re- researching and always reading about sports and, and basketball and football and things like that. So I knew what I wanted to ask him. I knew what he, the award he was receiving. Mm-hmm. So I just was quick, again, that sink or swim mentality. And he was there. And Pat Riley has a presence that is like, whoa, mm-hmm. I think that had to be, I've never been nervous to interview anybody. Um, and I've interviewed some like amazing people and Pat Riley walked up to me and shook my hand and I was like, oh God, this is Pat Riley. <laughs> like, I was like, okay, this is the Pat Riley. That probably was my no- most nerve wracking interview, but you wouldn't know it. Cause like, in his face, I was like, yeah, I'm good. It's no big deal. When he left, I was like, 
freaking out. <laughs> that was Pat Riley. Like, that's a big deal. <laughs> like, so, um, yeah, sometimes you don't, sometimes you can't be prepared, but you have to be prepared if that makes okay. sense. You can't actually know that you're preparing, but you have to have something back there that helps you to be prepared. Mm-hmm. Goes back to that. Stay ready so you don't got to get ready. Always. So, you know, along with having that on your resume, you have so many other things you were, you're with your work with those companies. It happened over a short amount of time. So how are you able to manage building something so quickly and, you know, just grounding yourself? I think for me, it's, it, to everybody else, it appears quickly. To me, it doesn't. So I think that's why it's easy to kind of stay grounded. Um, you know, I've been working in this field since I was 18, 27 now. So when I turned 28, that makes a decade. And I know to a lot of people, whether they just started following me or um, whether, you know, they just, you know, they've been following me, maybe it appears like it's happened a lot quicker. Um, but if you know, like I've been hustling and I've been at this since I was 18 years old and it hasn't always been perfect and it hasn't always been, um, successful. I mean, I was very fortunate to get two jobs on TV back to back out of college while in college and then out of college. But then after that, when I hit, I want to say when the show ended, I was 23. Um, when Generation X ended, I was 23 years old and I didn't have a job in the field. You know, it was, I was doing like stuff, like I was hosting, I was doing hosting gigs and I was doing, um, you know, little interviews here and there to just kind of keep my name out there and keep relevant and keep my skills up and build a reel and things like that. But it wasn't consistent. Mm -hmm. And I had to go and, you know, I'm 23 years old. Like I can't just not work. So I had to go and get a regular job whatever that means to anybody and um while still trying to pursue what I wanted to do and I had to do that for like a year and a year and a half rather and then um that's what led me to iHeart eventually was that constant grind and doing other things um in my field while working in a field that is not mine and it was while balancing the two that I created something that got the attention of iHeart that they wanted to interview me about and from there they were just impressed by the way I spoke my vibe that they asked me if I was interested in doing radio and offered me a job and that's kind of how it happened so you never know what opportunities await you mm -hmm. Just you have to sometimes go through the mud to get them. Yeah. So yeah. did that did that kind of shift your perspective on like how to get to a certain place where you because you created your your own lane to be still recognized. I mean, you brought up you created the documentaries, correct? Yeah. So did that kind of shift your your perspective on okay, I don't have to follow cut and dry this this and that to get to a certain space. A hundred percent. I mean, I, my route to where I am right now is probably very unconventional. Um, I'm probably very unconventional. I mean, if you look at some of the other reporters that are out there, they're a little bit more polished, probably. They're a little bit more, um, you know, more of a 
ideal kind of like vibe, if that makes sense. You know, everybody just, everyone's very well spoken and all journalists have to be. And I feel like me, my, they've all kind of either started in newsrooms and then worked their way up. And mine's been like this, you know what I mean? Like, and I've never tried to be anything other than who I am. I mean, I've always tried to improve who I am, but I'm never going to be, you know, I'm a New York girl. I'm never going to lose my accent. You know, I'm never going to, you know, not have that kind of an edge, that kind of a flair. I'm never going to, you know, dress the same as, you know, some other reporters that you may see, you know, I'm, my vibe just been different. And Mm -hmm. I think for the longest time, you know, I was questioning whether or not that would be successful. And I think, going through what I went through in that period of time where I wasn't working in my field consistently to getting iHeart, I realized that sometimes it may not be the conventional route, but it's your route. You know what I mean? It may not be the typical story, but it's your story. Uh You know, I don't know. Maybe somebody wouldn't have had to um, at 25 years, 20, 23 years old, rather, would have had to go and get a regular job. Maybe they've been consistently working in their field, but that's their story, and God bless them. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Maybe somebody um, didn't have to, you know, do documentaries or things for free, but if not, that's amazing. God bless them. But everyone's story is different, and I think it's a matter of embracing your individual story and knowing that it's yours and not trying to change necessarily who you are. Always try to improve, always try to be better, but try to be a better version of you, not a better version of who you think you should be in order to be successful. And I think that's what um, I used to fall into when I was younger. You know, you grow up and you're looking at Aaron Andrews and things like that. And you question yourself, I'm never going to look like Aaron Andrews. It's just never going to happen. Like I could do a billion procedures. It's just never going to happen. I'm never going to be here. And I think you look at that and you say, well, there's no way I could do what she's doing because I'm not Aaron Andrews. But that's cool because there's only one Aaron Andrews. We don't need another one. And I think having that mentality and really that period of time helped me to come to kind of those realizations and use that moving forward. Okay. Okay. So I feel like I'm off in during your regular job that humbled you in a way and gave you time to, you know, just reflect because even though it might have not seemed so fast paced for you in the time with CW and, um, you know, Generation Generation Next, like that time off allowed you time to reflect and grow and still work on your craft. So I think in a sense, it's like a blessing in disguise. But when iHeartRadio offered you that job, what was it like? What was the biggest difference between TV and radio? So honestly, I never wanted to work in radio. And if you ask anyone who works in TV, it's kind of like, why would I want to work in radio? I'm on TV. <laughs> and that was kind of my mentality in the beginning. You know, my mom would tell me all the time, why, when that period of where I wasn't working, why don't you apply for radio jobs? And I kind of was like, I don't want to work in radio. Like I'm, I've worked in TV for years. I'm not going to work in radio. Um, so when radio came into my life, it, it was a huge adjustment. I mean, I think what helped me was that a lot of the behind the scenes stuff, like, um, Final Cut and things like that, I already knew, but the lingo's different. Mm-hmm. Um, 
the time clocks are different. I've never done live TV. This was live television. I mean, live radio. And um, I think, honestly, what's helped me the most in radio is the training it's done for my voice. You know, radio is a different beast than TV. You know, like I said, it's live. And you don't have your physical to bring people in. You know, you know, you watch shows and if someone's really pretty or they're wearing a nice outfit, even if you're not necessarily interested in like, you know, what they're saying or he's a cute guy, you're kind of like drawn in because you're like distracted by like the lights and the, the shirt, you know, the whole look of it and the show and the person. Radio, you don't have that blessing. It's just you and your voice. So you have to bring people in with that. And I think it's really helped me become a better journalist and it's helped me learn to be quick on my feet and things like that. So the biggest thing um, was the adjustment, obviously it was a huge adjustment, but the biggest blessing has been that it's given me a gift that I can take and use and apply towards television. So what was it like hearing your voice the first time on radio? It was weird. <laughs> it was super and I think there was um there's an article I think Johnny Depp said it Johnny Depp doesn't watch his own movies like he's never seen Edward Scissorhands and I used to think what that's so weird yeah. but when I got on TV um I I realized what that meant like I hate what like TV maybe not so bad um in the beginning I hated watching myself on TV now I have to watch it almost as game film because you've got to learn like what you should fix what whatever but um radio was weird like it was like driving in your car because sometimes you pre-record so like you'll be in studio recording three o'clock but the, the segment won't air till six so you can be driving in your car and then all of a sudden it's like hey so i'm like that's weird you know what i mean it's super weird but um yeah it was strange it was different and it was cool, but it, it's it's something that even to this day, I'm not 100%, like, yeah. com not comfortable, but 100%, like, there with. It's still mm -hmm. so surreal to me, yeah. I feel like in general, so many people hate hearing their voice being played back. <laughs> yeah, 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 me too. Sometimes I'm just like, oh, like, I hate when I have to, like, edit something, and I'm, like, hearing myself over and over and <laughs> over. I'm just like, oh, my God, like, stop talking. Like, please yeah. stop talking, yeah. It's, it's, but you gotta do it, you know? Exactly. And then <laughs> 103.5, that was mainly entertainment. So how did you switch over to entertainment and then sports? So when I started at iHeart, the job was for 103.5, which is their hip hop station. And, you know, that was kind of going back to my SFL TV days. I mean, we didn't interview like people like Rick Ross and 2 Chains, but it was entertainment based. There were no sports. And um, I started doing interviews and I started doing um, Last to Know News, which is basically a, um, like the trending stories in sports and I mean in entertainment and things like that. So after doing that for maybe a couple of months, I want to say five or six months, football season was coming around, which was around August. And I knew we had a sports station literally down the hall. Like I heard this big building and the radio stations are all next to each other. So it's right there. So I go to my boss and I say, hey, is there an opportunity for me to be on sports radio? Like even if it's just like one day a week or just like a guest segment, I really would love to get one and talk about football and the season and things like that. 
she set up a meeting with the guy who had the show and um we hit it off and he's like come on the show let's see how it goes it went really well and started off as one day a week and then one day a week became two days a week and then became three days a week and then next thing i knew in the span of maybe like four weeks i was on that show every single day as the co-host and we were doing you know all things sports we were talking about all things sports and it really helps the show become something different because it before it was just two men Right. you know talking about sports but when you bring a woman into things not only things about sports but in life perspectives are different and you get a different tone and a different voice and you get a different um opinion and it just makes the show it's a show unlike any other shows on iheart and i think on in sports in south florida to begin with sports mm-hmm. radio it's very very rare to have a woman co-host and i think it really sets us apart from a lot of the other shows that exist you bring up being a woman on that show. How do you, in general, combat the stereotypes of being a woman in the field? I think the most important, and um, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day about this, truthfully, and, you know, I still struggle with it. I think, um, you know, you it's human nature to kind of want to bite back when someone says something to you offensive. You know, for me, it's never been, I think, with age, it's not so much the opinions things because I realize everyone's going to have an opinion and it may not always be your opinion. But I think for me, it's more of the remarks that may come across sexist or things like that, that I have a hard time not responding to. And I'm still kind of learning that not everything is a response when it comes to that. But um, because you can't make grown men act like grown men, you can't make people act like people. Mm-hmm. And um, but I think for me, the biggest thing I can tell people who are going to be in sports, women, be prepared. And you can never be overprepared. Um, and I say that not because, you know, there's a doubt that, you know, that you're incapable. I say it because, unfortunately, in this field, there are still people who feel like women do not deserve the right to speak about sports. And you can say one thing wrong and you'll get ripped apart whereas a man can say like five things wrong and it'll be like oh he doesn't know what he's talking about but it's cool whatever it's a double standard and unfortunately the double standard exists and it still exists and i won't say that it doesn't and um a lot of people think just because you're a man that you kind of have the right to talk about sports a lot of men in the sports industry have never played a sport and if they did they stopped at high school they never played college sports. They never played professional sports. But because they're a man, it's like you, you know, you have the right to talk about sports. So for women, be prepared. Know what you're talking about. You know, you don't have to be an expert in everything. It's impossible. But know what you're talking about that specific day, even if you are not, even if you are an expert, still research, still learn, still grow, because the playing field is not even. Exactly. And for you yourself, I can tell that you're dedicated and you're knowledgeable about the sports that you cover. I was reading somewhere, do you have Tape Tuesdays? I don't know if that's still yeah. what you do, but... Yeah, especially now <laughs> with, you yeah. know, the studio and then um, being home and working from home. But yeah, I consistently watch tape. I watch old games, um, games I know the outcome. Um, I try to learn 
certain plays. I try to learn, um, I rewind. I try to predict certain things from happening that are going to happen, things like that. Just because for me, football is my niche. Um, basketball would be my next niche. Mm-hmm. And I really try to take that niche seriously. And I try to learn it to the best of my ability. I'm always reading sports about, I'm always reading books about football and basketball. I'm always trying to learn you know, the new rules and things like that. I'm always, even when I'm watching the games, I'm trying to point out, okay, so that's this kind of a play and that's the result. This is, I'm just constantly trying to um, learn that because you can never stop learning. You can never stop growing. And I know that for me, it's a, I'm held to a different standard because I'm a woman. And on top of that, I'm, you know, a woman who's a minority. So it's a double standard, you know, not only are you a woman, but you're a black woman and you have to be twice as good to be taken as seriously. So, um, yeah, take Tuesdays. It's still going strong. <laughs> it's not every Tuesday like it used to be, but it's, it's, it's going strong. I make it a point to watch film consistently. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. And I was to go along with the whole woman and being black, I was watching this Taylor Rooks interview and she was like, yeah, you may have a good interview and good questions, but the people are going to focus on, you know, how you look over what you're saying. And I feel like that's a big thing that it's the people that are switching the narrative. And, you know, looks could only get you a certain place and won't keep you there. So, like with you, you've done both modeling and journalism. I'm sure you, can, you could say, you know, journalism, it's much more difficult than just sitting there and looking pretty. So um yeah first of all love taylor she's a friend of mine that was actually a friend i was talking to the other day um and yeah so for me i started as a model and you know in college modeling was good money it was extra money to go to the bar and to buy food and to buy shoes and to go out and things like that so my instagram looked a lot different in 2014 2013 than it does now and i think for me when I started at NBC, it was a conversation that I had with someone. It was like, look, we need to like change your Instagram. It's a little bit too model who does sports instead of sports girl who maybe, you know, has model looks or however you want to put it. There's a way to flip the narrative. And unfortunately, when you're a woman in sports, your looks are always going to be a conversation. Honestly, when you're a woman in anything that's visual, your looks always going to be a conversation i mean you look at someone like hillary clinton who was running for president of the united states and people cared more about the outfit she was wearing to these debates than what was coming out of her mouth i mean it's just that's the world that we live in unfortunately um so you can't necessarily always combat it because even if you were wearing a turtleneck and you know a long skirt and you're not showing any skin someone's still gonna have a comment about how you look so there's no running from that all you can do is lead with your work and lead with your talent and i'm also a firm believer and i don't believe that women need to tone down their beauty tone down their sexy to be taken seriously i think the beautiful thing and the amazing thing about women is that we are so multi-dimensional we can be so many different things you know, men aren't that blessed. They, they're they really just one dimensional. They can only be one thing. <laughs> women can be, you know, mothers and businesswomen. They can be, you know, powerful, but also sweet. They can be sexy, but they can be serious. I mean, 
I think that you are doing yourself an injustice as a woman if you don't own every single thing that you can be. And I never shy away from the fact that I'm a young woman. You know, I like to think that I'm an attractive woman and I'm not going to hide the fact that that's what I am just because people think that I can't be taken seriously if I own that because the two are not related. So that's not to say, you know, to walk around, you know, um, in a bathing suit while you're, you know, reading ESPN news and things like that, like on your YouTube channel. But that's not to say that you have to be covered in like a jacket and zipped up for people to be taking you seriously. You know, you lead with way more than your looks and never allow anyone to diminish who you are as a woman and how you feel that you look and the beauty that you feel because you think you can't be taken seriously otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's the t that that's the thing too. People like to square away women into one certain thing, and they can only be that, and they can't, you know, delve off into other interests and different personas. Yeah. But 100%. what would you say is what do you bring to the table that makes you just as good or better than the male candidate? Um, I think what makes me different is, you know, I'll never say better because I think everybody is, I think everyone's necessary in the sports world in some way, shape or form. I mean, you need the guy whose opinions are just ridiculous. You need the person whose opinions are more like flip flop. You need the person who's loud. You need the person who's more soft. I mean, it's what makes sports so unique. Everyone's different and they result in different opinions and different verbiage and different stories. I think that what makes me different um, is I'm kind of, it's weird. I'm, I'm a girly girl but I'm also one that can roll with the boys. Like, you know, yeah, I can sit and talk about, you know, my nails and Beyonce and who wore what and whatever with girls and appeal to women. But like, if a guy wants to go toe to toe with me on how many yards Dak Prescott had last game, we can go toe to toe if you want to. Yeah. Like, I probably am going to win, but we can try it if you want to. <laughs> so I think for me, it's, I'm... I like to think the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. I don't ever shy away from the fact that I'm not that I'm a woman and I'm proud to be right. a woman. I own everything that comes with that. But I'm also not afraid or willing to dial back the fact that I'm a powerful woman at that and I'm outspoken and I have opinions. Yeah. Those opinions aren't always opinions that people agree with, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm not afraid to shy away from the fact that you know, I'm not afraid to have the debates with the biggest guy in the room. You know what I mean? Like we, we can have the conversation if you want to. So I think that's different. I think a lot of times women feel like they have to like dial it back. I've never felt like I've had to dial it back. Like, um, this is who I am and this is what we're going to do. So yeah. we're going to do it. Yeah, I love that. I feel like it stresses that versatility and confidence all in one. But as you mentioned in your bio, this girl knows sports. So mm -hmm. Let's just take a second, the segment I like to call what's really good to mm -hmm. talk about sports because, you know, although sports may not be may not be happening currently, it is starting up and there are current events that are happening surrounding sports. So first one, because you are a Knicks fan, how are <laughs> in the playoff talk, but off season talk, you guys are making some moves. How do you feel about, you know, William Wesley, the coaching staff? Um, moves in the draft, things like that. 
So I'm, I have a love-hate relationship with my mix. I, I'm, I try not to get attached to anybody that comes in as a coach or part of our coaching staff because we move them around like chess pieces, obviously. Um, but, you know, I'm excited to see what he brings to the table. I think it's unfortunate that the Knicks have become almost a laughing stock of the NBA because there's so much history in New York. I mean, the Garden is the most famous arena in the world. And I tell everyone, if you have a chance to go to a game at the Garden, go. It's an experience like no other. And that's even with the Knicks not being a good team right now. I mean, it's you can just feel the basketball history in that arena. And I would love to see the Knicks get back. And I feel, you know, we've, we've come close a few times, you know, in the Carmelo era, I thought that that, that was really going to be the era that changed us. And then of course, you know, when Stoudemire first came without Melo, I thought that was going to be the era. We had the Stefan Marbury era yeah. and we've come close where we were like, okay, this is it. And obviously, you know, we've, we've missed a couple um, big game changers, you know, Porzingis did not turn out to be what we thought, you know, we had Phil Jackson that did not turn out to be, you know, the Jedi master we hoped he would be for us. Right. <laughs> you know, we missed out on Zion. We missed out on KD. We missed out on Kyrie. So yeah. we had some rough patches, but I'm open as a Knicks fan to anybody who can revive us, bring us back to life. Because I know the net, the Nets are out in Brooklyn. Okay. <laughs> New York is still the Knicks town. And I'm ready to see the Knicks come back to their glory days. Would that new person, would you accept LaMelo? Because I know LaVar, he was saying, you know, LaMelo, I feel like he would be a good position for this turnaround of the team and the rebuild of the team. So how would you feel about LaMelo being on the Knicks? I would love LaMelo on the team. I don't know how I feel about having LaVar at every game. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, coming off the bench, yelling, talking about us all the time. But, you know, it comes with the territory. But I, like I said, I am for anybody. I think LaMelo is a great ball player. Um, I think he's even slightly better than his brother Lonzo, if you ask me. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, if we can really get a young team and keep them together, that's the key that people don't really understand is it's easy to, it's not easy to build chemistry. You know, you look at what they did in Miami with the big three, they lost their first year because you can't gel a team like that. You have to let them, you know, experience each other, learn each other. And if we can get a young core of guys in New York, and keep them together and, and, and build them and grow them. We, I feel like the Knicks can in a couple of years be in the playoffs and be contenders. And it's just a matter. We got to stop moving people around. Like yeah. we got, everyone's got to stay put. Like for <laughs> season, just stay put, stay together. Next couple of years, maybe. You heard it here first. Fingers crossed. That's, I'm, I'm keeping my fingers <laughs> crossed, guys. Okay, and then another thing, we, you talked about Melo. I, this isn't current, but I must ask, do you think he's a Hall of Fame player? Because there's a lot of talk about that, too. It's, I'm a big Carmelo fan coming from New York. I mean, I'm a huge Syracuse fan. And um, I think Carmelo, it's hard to say. You know, I hate, I hate saying who's not a Hall of Famer and who is, because I feel like I don't play basketball professionally. Who am I to say, you know, who's worth it and who's not? I think Carmelo definitely is like a ring of honor type of guy. You know, he, his name should definitely be 
you know, in the Raptors at, you know, definitely in Denver. I would love to see it in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, is he a Hall of Famer? It's hard. You know, you think of the people in the Hall of Fame. Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird. I mean, Hall of Famers. And then you put Carmelo's name in that equation. It just doesn't seem like a fit. Yeah. As a Carmelo fan, is he a Hall of Famer? Absolutely. As an NBA fan, is he a Hall of Famer? Probably not. But, you know, I don't make the decision, so. Right. I mean, he has, he won that NBA scoring title, 10-time um, All-Star. So he, he does have those accolades. But then, you know, I think about, he does later in his career, he has those flaws. And I think because I was an OKC fan. So, you know, at that time with OKC, I, I had hopes for, you know, yeah. Russ, Paul George, and yeah, yeah. but didn't work out. So <laughs> there's always going to be that push and pull. But it's hard because when you're a fan, you say yes like right away but from a logistics standpoint when you think about what a hall of famer actually is and what it represents and who's in the hall of fame right now currently and who probably will be in the hall of fame d wade's a hall of famer but d wade's also a three-time nba champion you know what i mean steph curry is a hall of famer carmelo i love him he's a huge carmelo fan right. he doesn't have any rings not that rings equate hall of fame but you know it's it's hard the the hall of fame is a, is a tricky tricky debate and nobody will ever have the same answer twice so and then i also want to have your take on this because as i mentioned i was an oklahoma city thunder fan but then you know as time went on we see all the big players leave i i don't want to <laughs> say i'm a bandwagon but um the question is do you think the nba has turned into being a fan of the player more than a fan of the team because my whole thing is i found i'm more of a fan of um, russell westbrook that's why i'm like following him from team so do you what's your take on that i think well first i think the nba is a leader in what we would want for other leagues um, they put their players first, you know, and I think that's because their players demand to be put first. And um, I think because players have a lot of power in the NBA, it's a lot easier for them to move around. And when it's a lot easier for a player to move around, you can't really get attached to a team. You know, the days of Kobe Bryant playing with one team for 20 years is over. Yeah. You know, you'll never see one player play with one franchise for that long, I think, ever again. It just won't happen. It's just not the way the league is set up. There's too much money to be made. There's too much power in the players. They're moving around. They're willing and dealing. They want to be super teams. They want to play with each other. They want to go where they're going to win a championship. And I think it's definitely becoming a fan of player league. I think people are more fan of players than they are of teams because they're pl- the players move around I don't I mean of course you'll have people who are from certain places and they're, they rep their home team yeah. and they do so but it's not the same as like back in the day where if you were a Celtics fan you were a Celtics fan there yeah. was no oh I'm a Celtics fan this year but I'm a Lakers no you're a Celtics fan <laughs> me I'm a diehard Knicks fan but yeah. I was also a Kobe Bryant fan so I heavily rooted for the Lakers while he was alive and playing so I think um it's definitely becoming more 
fan the players and wherever the player goes is the team you support and you still have a little bit of love in your heart for your hometown your home state and your home team (laughs) um that's not the team you're rooting for if you're a westbrook fan you're you're rooting for houston right now so and that's the thing some people don't get they're like oh you're just bandwagon like you're switching team to team i'm like okay but Westbrook I've always I've been with that team since you know they they met the Lakers in like the 2010 playoffs so I'm a huge Westbrook fan so I respect that I think he's an amazing player I think he doesn't get the credit he deserves Mm -hmm. I think he gets a lot of slack for his passion but I think you know in that in that conference you know when him and KD were still playing and seeing how he gave his all and then KD you know didn't come through for the man yep (laughs) A whole new um, respect for Russell Westbrook, yeah. So moving on to another current event, we see that multiple teams reportedly are interested in signing Kaepernick. What is your take on this? I think Kaepernick should have been signed seasons ago. Um, I would love to see him sign to a team. I think first and foremost, he's owed an apology from the NFL. And I don't think that if he signed that he that erases the need for an apology. Um, I would love to see it really happen, though. I remember when, um, and I talked about him on my show in the beginning of the season this year, and they gave him, you know, that bogus workout and no team showed up. And it was just, you know, I hope it's not just like talk, like, oh, we want to sign him and nobody ever does. Um, I think that in an effort to show that they're, the NFL is really about changing and really about um, progressing and really about, you know, supporting Black Lives Matter and supporting their Black athletes, you have to sign the person who started it. And it's not that you're signing him because, you know, it's, Just you know, it's charity. It's right. not that it's charity. Colin Kaepernick's a lot better than a lot of the quarterbacks and at least backup quarterbacks in the NFL currently. So it's not like you're doing him a favor. He's a good player. We're not asking you to sign some guy off the street, you know, playing football in the park. Like, this is a quarterback who went to the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I would love to see him signed, and I also would love to see him receive an apology because I think exactly. it's nice. Yeah, I think the apology, you can't really say that you're going to sign him, but then, like, you haven't even acknowledged what exactly. you've done towards him. And, like, what's different now than four years ago? They're trying – I feel like they're just trying to – rebuild their image in a way just because it's a hot topic as you said you know with the black lives matter movement all happening right now so in a sense like it does seem inauthentic but you know yeah we need we need that energy to be consistent throughout but (laughs) so next this one happened a couple months ago but the ncaa they announced supporting student athletes to receive compensation um Mm -hmm. third-party endorsements so what's what's your take on this I think it's a long time coming. Um, I know that there are a lot of people who, and I talked about this on my show at the top of the year, um, there are a lot of people who want to use the justification of a free education to some of the best schools in the country as a way to say, oh, why should we, why should they receive any compensation off of, you know, playing a sport and things like that? Because it's labor, you know, with labor comes compensation and they're going to a program. Yes, they're in some of the best schools in the country. I mean, a lot of these kids, if they didn't play sports, no, they wouldn't be able to go to Duke or UNC or USC or, you know, any of the big schools, UConn, things like that. 
but that doesn't justify not paying them for the benefit that you are reaping. And these schools reap millions and millions and millions of dollars from these players and from these programs. And if you look at it from, you know, a, a hierarchy, yes, the school necessarily is at the top, but if the players weren't coming to your programs because, you know, if the players weren't coming to these programs and performing and resulting in wins, which then results in more notoriety and more money for these programs, which then make them more appealing to players coming up from high school. Oh, I want to go here. They just want a championship. Oh, I want to go here. All of NBA players come out of this school. Then the schools would be asked out also. So yes, it's, it's a, it's a symbiotic relationship because you give the players give, you reap the benefits. What do they get? Because at the end of the day, um, only 1% of college players end up going to the NBA, 1%. So you justifying with the free education, most of them don't even finish going to school because they go to the draft. Exactly. Um, there's no guarantee that when they go to the draft, they get selected for the draft. If they do get selected, if they're not going in like the top 10, the money is not the same. There's no guarantee they make a roster after the first round. So, I mean, after the second round rather. So there's a lot of moving pieces that an education is just not enough. And if you're reaping millions and millions and millions of dollars from selling their jerseys, selling their face on those little cardboard thingies, selling their faces in video games, I can't get a piece of that? No. So 100% I'm for it, and it's been a long time coming, and I cannot wait until it's universal across the country. Right, yeah, I agree. Like you said, it's a a business, and multi-million dollar, you know, college and football, college football and basketball teams are coming out of it, and for them to make money off of a player's name and, like, they're the ones bringing the fans and whatnot. So they should be able, like you said, they should be able to make a profit from their own notoriety. A hundred percent. And honestly, they don't really have a choice because more and more players are going overseas to play, playing there for a year, building up their skills, building up that, and then coming back and entering the draft, Mm -hmm. kind of like LaMelo did. So if the NCAA wasn't going to pay these guys, then they weren't going to get any players. More and more players were going overseas to get paid. So they didn't really have a choice. Their hands were tied. So it worked out, but it took a little bit too long. Just a little bit. (laughs) So (laughs) the next one, I know you posted about it this morning, but the Bubba Wallace scenario, what Mm -hmm. is, let's talk about that for a second. What's your take on it? So I'm not an avid NASCAR watcher. I think I've been to one NASCAR race in my life, (laughs) but I want to say that You know, first of all, I applaud NASCAR for taking the um, necessary steps and involving the FBI in this. Um, It definitely speaks volumes to the direction that NASCAR is headed. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, when they banned Confederate flags, nobody thought that the fans of NASCAR were going to go down without a fight, that they were going to be like, oh, yay! Flags are banned, you know, especially NASCAR's fan base is heavily based in those red states, if you will. So it's not something that they were going to take easily. But I think for me, two issues that I have is obviously one, with all the evidence, the photo, you know, the statement from NASCAR, 
you know, the FBI's investigation and the results of that investigation, the fact that people still find it easier to blame Bubba Wallace, somebody who didn't even report this in the first place, it didn't come from him, somebody else reported it and he just verified it. It's easier for people to blame him and label him a liar as somebody looking for attention than to accept the fact that there are some hateful people in this world. And somebody thought that was funny. Somebody thought that that was okay. That it's easier for people to blame him is part of the problem. The other part of the problem, the fact that that was there for seven months and nobody thought to take it down, nobody thought to report it, everybody just walked past it every single day. No big deal. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't see an issue with it. It shouldn't have been there to begin with, but it definitely should not have been there for seven months. Exactly. That's insane to me. If I, if I worked in NASCAR, mm-hmm. and I've been in a couple of garages in my day, and I know that now they either have a button or it's like a rope with like a little like knot so you can just easily pull it up and down. I've never seen a garage pull like that. And that's not even something with like a little mini loop that can kind of look like a noose, but it's not. It's probably just a little hand. That's a blatant, clear as day noose that everybody walked past for seven months and nobody reported it. That's an issue. Yeah. That's a serious problem. Yeah, I think, like you said, it's just crazy how people are making comments about him above a crying wolf saying that it's not a noose when it was NASCAR in the first place, you know, coming out with that statement saying that it wasn't a regular pull down. And yeah. so I just think also it's crazy, like, how is it so out of reach for some people to believe that when look at just the state of this country, like we're seeing black people being hanged, set on fire in 2020. So I just, it's a hundred percent. And that's, a big part of the problem that it's easier, you know, for me, and I said this in my video, it's easier for people to find blame in somebody else and to realize that in this country, there are people who are not good people. There are people who don't see an issue with that. And I think for most people, it's the lack of discomfort. Like that, if you walked past that noose every single day for seven months, and then the fact that you were able to walk past it means you weren't uncomfortable by it. And the fact that you're not uncomfortable by it is a problem issue. Yeah. What it represents is hatred and bigotry and a time in this country that was just disgusting and horrendous. And the fact that even something that resembles it, let's play devil's advocate and say that's not what it is. It genuinely is a garage pole. Let's just say that. But the fact that it even looks like it should be enough for you to be like, yeah, we got to take this down. The fact that you know that there's not a garage pull on NASCAR's premises that looks like that should be enough for you to take it down. And the fact that nobody reported that or took it or even bothered to like rip it off the wall or the garage door for seven months, I, I have to question that. And I have to question the type of people who are working within the NASCAR organization. Exactly. Yeah. I think it just speaks volumes about the current state of some of the people in this country. But moving on, let's talk about, you know, the NBA's return. How do you feel, how do you see that playing out in the bubble? Do you stand with players like Kyrie Irving? I, I'm not a fan of the bubble. I'm going to be honest. Um, I think that it's a good idea and concept. I just think that, first of all, there's been, I don't know how you can possibly stop the spread of anything. Um, I guess because the way that this virus is working is you can test negative on a Tuesday. Okay, cool. You're good to go in the bubble. But then Thursday, you can be positive. 
now what? Now you just infected how many people in this bubble? Yeah. So I don't know how you can possibly quarantine everyone for the necessary two weeks because everyone's on different timetables. So that's one issue. Two is I just feel as though it's, um, I don't think if it's sending a bad message about what's going on, you know, in this country, I don't think that. I think that you can walk and chew gum at the same time. I think you can, um, you know, play basketball and you can spread awareness. I can understand why someone's on the other end of that. They think it's a distraction. I completely understand that. Mm -hmm. I also think that basketball right now is just, it's forced. I don't need the last three months of the season right now. It's July basically. And then on top of that, the guys end in October and they got to start up again in November. I would prefer maybe a longer 2020, 2021 season. You know, I could have taken that, but I don't know how much respect I'm going to put on a championship one in the Disney world. I'm going to be honest, like whoever wins the championship, I'm kind of looking at it like, "Mm, okay, same thing with baseball, like the 60 game season, whoever wins the world series after 60 games, whatever i mean congrats exactly <laughs> like half of baseball season so i don't know if there, there's always going to be an asterisk next to the season and next to this championship um i just don't know if it's necessary you know at this point i feel like i would have preferred for these i mean guys i've talked to and gotten quotes and things from they're very worried about having to go and play competitive basketball in a format they're not familiar with after five months of not being able to train how their normal training routines are Mm -hmm. you know not like a month break this is not like we're in April and you know they've only been out for a month it's been five and a half months and these guys are creatures of habits and their bodies are creatures of habits and it's not going to be an easy adjustment period and then all the rules about you know, who could be on the court at what time and not being on the court two hours before game time. That's abnormal to these guys. And it's going to be interesting, the level of basketball, the quality of basketball that we actually get. I, I don't know how good it's actually going to be, to be honest. Yes, it should be interesting. And like you said, it's just, it's kind, it is kind of forced and with the whole health concerns, like, is it really worth it to go back for your health when it was it was interesting seeing how they made that smart ring, which the whole another story. <laughs> yeah, the smart ring is um I wish, you know, our essential workers exactly. had those things like that. But I mean, at least, you know, I, I will say the NBA, um, although as ridiculous as the bubble may seem and resuming the season may seem to some people, I will say though that the NBA definitely is considering player safety by keeping them in one place baseball you know they're those guys are going to be traveling around mm-hmm. there's a bubble for baseball um football could care less you know they're they're planning on starting training camp right on time and having fans in those stadiums and they, they that's a different that's a different beast over there but um i don't know it'll be interesting to see the quality of basketball i don't know how good it's gonna be i don't know what's gonna look like i don't know what these guys are gonna look like i don't know who's in shape who's not in shape um We'll see the end of July, though. I mean, right. I wouldn't want yeah. to travel to the world for three months. I'll tell you that. But <laughs> definitely, <laughs> definitely a different dynamic because even if you look at Avery Bradley, he said he's not going. And yeah. he's a difference maker for the Lakers. So I feel like that's going to be another thing, too. Like, regardless mm-hmm. of win or lose, like, 
oh, they didn't have their fullest potential of players. So I'm not going to count that. That's a great point. And I was actually saying that to my dad the other day was like, let's say for argument's sake, Giannis is like, yeah, I'm not coming. Right? Mm-hmm. If you beat a giannis list Bucks team, did you really beat the Bucks? Right. <laughs> I know you beat the Bucks jerseys, but did you actually beat the Bucks? So it will be interesting to see which players are going, which players aren't. And if you end up beating a team that's without a lot of their key players, a lot of their, you know, playmakers, did you really beat that team? Like, did you or did you just beat their jerseys? Right. Yeah. Um, And then on the racial side, I know you kind of brought up how you can see it either ways. Um, I agree, like you can, I, I see that push from certain players who are like, it's a distraction from the social justice movement. And in a way I, I do see like, yeah, basketball and sports, it provides that talk, which in a way is, is a distraction. It gives that normalcy. And, you know, we're already seeing people posting regular stuff on the gram, selfies already. So what is sports gonna add to that? Is it gonna, you know, it heightened that normalcy. I think that, you know, Lou had a really good point when he said it can serve as a distraction because right now on your timeline, because there are no sports, yes, people are posting selfies and things like that, normal content. But outside of that, everything else is geared towards Black Lives Matter or the coronavirus, you know, because that's the only thing we have. So when you start adding in baseball and you start adding in basketball, now you're diluting what your timeline looks like because now there's more stuff in there. So it's almost like the equivalency of like when you play that game where you put a bunch of objects in a a bag, you shake the bag up and you pull something out of the bag. If initially you only had two red balls in the bag, one of the two, you're going to pull out a red ball. But if you start adding yellow balls in there and, and blue balls in there and green balls in there, when you start pulling things out of that bag, you're not guaranteed to get that red one anymore. So the red one would be Black Lives Matter and coronavirus. Now when you start adding all these other colors in there, there's no guarantee that, that you're going to see the protests on your timeline as often as you are now or the updates about, you know, the next unarmed Black person killed or the next updates about closings and shutdowns and things like that. Now it's going to be highlights. Now it's going to be people talking about what LeBron did last night. Now it's going to be about this home run at MLB, this, um, you know, slam dunk in WNBA. There's a lot more to distract you from. Um, there's a lot more to distract you with on your timeline. So I get it. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they combat that what the nba is going to do to keep the message alive keep the conversation going keep the movement keep um the momentum and you know that's something that they're going to have to work on because it it is going to be a distraction to a degree Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so i do i personally you know respect harry irving and him trying to make a stand because i just feel like the leagues are predominantly black so Mm -hmm. Players need to recognize how much power and responsibility that they do have. So, you know, leaks really don't exist without these Black players. They are the product and they have the value. So I feel like once these players recognize that, it can have a huge shift. Like, regardless of where you're playing or who's promoting it, you, like Mikey Williams and HBCU, regardless, like he has the talent, people are going to support him. Even if you look at Ice Cube's big three, 
that has so much support and it's with former NBA players and international players. So just imagine how much success a league with, you know, all the players owning it could have. Um, And then we'll go on to the very last um, little current event, LeBron James, a couple of days ago, he announced his new media company, Spring Hill. What is, what, how do you feel about that? I think LeBron, um, you can say a lot about him as a player. You know, you can have the whole Kobe, LeBron, Michael Jordan debate. You can say, oh, LeBron, you can just chase his rings and you could not respect him for being on three different teams and say Kobe would never or Jordan would never. That's fine. But one thing you can say about LeBron is he has developed a blueprint for what I feel like all of our friendships should be like. He has taken his core friends and really has created a group of Black men who are not only successful individually, but successful collectively, and then use that success to better other Black men and Black people in the Black community. And I mean, between, you know, the different shows that he's produced, between, um, you know, the news about his production company and how it's going to be geared towards Black creators and you know, he's really taken the fact that he is the most famous athlete in the world. I mean, yes, Cristiano Ronaldo is technically the most famous and the richest, but (laughs) LeBron James is second. (laughs) Um, You know, he has really taken that and used it to better and set up a lot of people with the opportunity to better themselves and to showcase their talent. And I think it's genius and I love what he's done with his group of friends from Rich Paul and and Maverick and you know I feel like we should all aspire to have our friendships like that to like put on our put all of our friends on in whatever avenue that they're good in and just get money together and be successful together and I you know you can say a lot a lot about LeBron and I have been critical of him in the past for some things but he is an amazing businessman, and I definitely give him credit for everything that he has done and will continue to do, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm really excited for that, just to see, you know, the collectiveness of the Black community, because as you said, sometimes in the Black community, it can be so separatist, and especially within women. I feel like that's a whole stigma with competition with each other, and I feel like you know, the only person you should be in competition with is yourself, like me versus me mentality. And other than that, uplift other women, other, your, your fellow um, Black peers. So I know, like, even with you, like, you know, I found your Instagram, I was like, wow, she's in her bag, like, she's doing the thing, like, so how do you, what's your advice um, for women? Just because I know young women, they're going through a weird time, and yeah, you've, kind of been through it and you've done it successfully so how do you how do you give advice to those trying to just sort it out so the weird time you're gonna have to go through it let me be honest with you your 20s is a weird time like you're especially your early 20s it's a super weird time you're trying to figure out who you are you're trying to figure out where you fit in you're trying to come to terms with your looks and your body and there's a lot going on behind the scenes that people don't see when they look at like a 20 something year old girl um i would say though that if if i could give myself advice like when i was like 21 it would be that you're good enough 
like you don't have to be this you don't have to be that you don't have to be um perfect you don't have to be you know the curviest you don't have to be the prettiest that there's something relative and necessary about each and every single one of us and it's about finding that and owning that and being that and you know i would say i know that you know the jealousy thing like you mentioned and you know i try to tell people all the time that you can't block what's yours and i know some people don't necessarily believe that i'm a firm believer that whatever blessing awaits you in life or blessings await you in life you don't get that you're not going to not get it by helping somebody else you're not going to not get that by telling you know someone a secret about the business or the industry or giving somebody a connection or an email or giving someone an interview or like it's it's not going to um take away your opportunity and i feel like too many people have that mentality where it's like well I'm not going to give her the connect to who does, you know, hiring at my station, because what if she comes and tries to take my job? Yeah. If, if that girl's meant, if that girl's meant to take your job, whether you give her the connection or not, she's going to take it anyway. Like she'll find a way to take it. Like, that's just how, that's how the universe works. Whatever is meant to happen always happens. Mm -hmm. And whether or not you assist the person in helping it to happen or whether you're like, I'm not going to do it. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And I think that women can be so much stronger and we're so much stronger when we are unified. And men don't have these issues. Like you, men are willing to help out other men all of the time. And women have to get out of this mindset that by helping the next woman is going to destroy her, is going to ruin her. And that's what I would like to see. And I've never had that mindset. I've always been, I've always thought like to myself, like where I was when I was 21, how would it have been different if somebody would have answered that email for me? How would it have been different if somebody would have let me shadow them? How would it have, would I have to have worked as hard? Would I have to have, you know, had all those, you know, rough patches and those ups and downs? Maybe not. Maybe I would have, maybe not. But I never, I think women who know that should be part of the change instead of continuing that pattern. And that's really what I would want to see women become. Yeah. That's, that's my goal. Yeah, I completely agree. I feel like there's no need to be stingy with knowledge or connections or just your experience, you know? So going back to what we talked about in the beginning, you know, with you being naturally shy and introverted you've obviously developed or, you know, into a successful, strong, confident person. So do you think that you were that way because you weren't comfortable with yourself? You were too worried about uh, how, how you were going to be perceived? A hundred percent. I think it's a part of it. I think, um, you know, it's that fake it till you make it mentality. And I think, you know, being tough and being, um, you know, uh, guarded in a sense and being just like ambitious and it kind of masked the fact that I wasn't always the most confident. And, um, I think when you, you know, when you, you lead, you fake that you're confident. So you, and you're so overconfident that people think, oh, there's no way she can be, you know? And I think that when I was younger, I thought that that was the way to be. And, um, 
it's not always beneficial because when you lead with that, people think you don't need anything. Mm. You know, people think you don't need their help. People think you don't need any connections. You don't need any networking help. You know, you got it. Like you're good. So there's a fine line. And, um, I would, I would say that there's, like I said, there's a fine line. And I think being confident and being, um, sure of yourself is a great thing, yeah. but don't be so overconfident that you scare off people who would help you, who want to help you, who, who want to like ask you questions and who want to like get to know you and things like that. Um, but yeah, I definitely had to do the whole like fake it till you make it thing because I was like terrified of you. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. But inside, I was like crying. Like, I was like, yeah. oh, I'm too. So, yeah, I definitely was guilty of that in the past. Well, I mean, you had the determination, um, stay strong throughout. And I want to reference one of your posts that you, you wrote in your journal about wanting to cover the um, Super Bowl in Miami mm-hmm. somehow, some way, and that you ended up achieving. So, mm-hmm. is manifestation like writing in your journal? something in your core beliefs like or what truly drives you to not only having the goals but executing them yeah I mean I you know you learn about which Super Bowls are coming to what city like a couple years in advance and I remember um when I found out the Super Bowl was going to be in Miami I I remember saying um and writing it down that I was going to be at that Super Bowl one way. If I was still living in Miami, I was going to be at that Super Bowl covering that Super Bowl one way or another. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think for me at, at the time when I wrote it, I thought it was going to be in a bigger um, aspect, you know, that because when I was like 23 years old, by 25, I thought I was going to be on ESPN. So like, yeah. um, you know, I thought I was going to be like, whatever, you know, I was radio row and interviewing players and things like that. I wasn't like in front of the camera or anything like that, but I was there. And um, I think for me, manifestation is so important. Even if you don't write it, you know, you don't have to write it down necessarily, but to just constantly visualize it, constantly see it. Yeah. You know, I don't write down every single thing I want to achieve in life, but I'm constantly seeing it in my head. Like when I close my eyes or when I have moments where I'm to myself, I'm constantly envisioning it. I'm constantly seeing it. I'm constantly almost like living in it, living in it in the future. And that's manifestation. And I know, you know, I'm a fan of vision boards and things like that, but I don't want people to think like, oh, if I don't do a vision board, I can't. Manifestation is so much more than just writing it down or putting a bunch of pictures on a piece of paper. It's really, truly seeing what you want and where you want to be. And that doesn't mean to like manifest it, put it on a, you know, post it and look at it and just sit back. You got to do the work. You know what I mean? It's not like manifestation means it's just going to come to you. Right. um, Doing the work and constantly seeing it is, I'm a firm believer that it works. Yeah. 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 I've looked so much into, you know, like the law of attraction, manifestation, as you mentioned, and it's just so powerful because you have to think a certain way and be in that mindset to see it through. But with, along with that, where do you see yourself then in five years? Five years from now, I definitely see myself either on network television, you know, Fox Sports, ESPN, um, you know, Vice is doing sports now, Bleacher Report. Um, 
if I'm not part of an existing show, like, you know, Undisputed or First Take or something like that, I would love to have my own show, um, telling stories about athletes and, and digging deeper into who they are as people, not just who they are on the court or on the field. Um, I definitely know that with women, there is a timeline with sports, um, an expiration date, if you will. Not everybody is as fortunate as the GOAT Doris Burke to be involved with sports for 20 plus years. Um, for me, sports hasn't been, being you know a sports broadcaster hasn't been just the end for me. That's not the goal. It's a goal, but it's not the end goal. And I would love to create my own company. I would love to create my own production company. I would love to take the blueprint. The thing that I, I look at somebody like Rihanna who has taken you know, her passion of being a singer and, and a performer and she did it well for many, many years. And she took that and she realized at some point when I read her article, I think it was in Vogue I read it or Vanity Fair or something. She took that and realized when she hit like around 29 years old, she can't be singing Umbrella like at 40. Like she realized there's an expiration date. You know what I mean? I can't be on tour, you know, talking about Umbrella and, you know, um, bitch better have my money and things like that. Like, you know what I mean? So she realized that she had to go ahead and create something with longevity and create something built on the foundation she built as a performer. And for me, that's always been my goal. I know that sports cannot be something that I'm going to do forever. Mm. Um, unfortunately, when your looks start to fade as a woman, so does, you know, the opportunities. It's just the unfortunate thing about being a woman in the industry. And for me, I've always wanted to create a foundation of a company, rather, an empire, if you will, with so many different things that I can go ahead and then put my, my passion and my life into and ultimately help other women. I'm such a feminist that when I'm in an opportunity to really start helping and giving opportunities to other women, I feel like that's like my responsibility as a woman to go ahead and pave the way for other women, say, this is what I did. You can do it or you can do it better than me. Do it better than me. Don't do it the same as me. Be better than me because I can't do it forever and I don't want to do it forever. And um, yeah, so that's always been my goal. Sports is the goal right now, but it's not my forever goal. And it's not yeah. something that I'm smarter to know that, that it's not possible for me to be yeah. for a forever goal. That's awesome. There's, there's like no limit. And it's great that you're thinking beyond, like not just the next 10 years, like you're thinking about your whole brand, like when it's all said and done, like what are you leaving? What is your legacy? So I think that's awesome. But we're going to finish it off here with a little speed round. Um, we'll okay. start off with who is your all-time starting five if you could create one for the NBA? Ooh, this is not going to be like, I'm not going to do these like the way, because I know I need one of each position, but whatever, this is my dream. Yeah. <laughs> I need Magic Johnson. I need Kobe Bryant, rest in peace. Michael Jordan. Let me get in there. Hmm. Oh, Allen Iverson. I need Allen Iverson. This is gonna be an all-scoring team. We have no defense. Allen Iverson, Magic Johnson, Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, and I'm gonna have to put in there. 
I don't know. I'm going to have to do it. Carmelo Anthony. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I got to put Carmelo in there. I mean, he probably won't get plenty of time, but I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have to put Melo in there. Yeah. Allen Iverson is one of my favorite players of all time. Actually, or Vince Carter. We can put Ooh. him in. Yeah, I do. Vince Carter over Melo just because those dunks were being entertaining to watch. Yep. Yeah. Definitely put Vince Carter in there. Yeah. That too. That's, sol- that's solid. So, that's one. So. <laughs> <laughs> get it done. Yeah. Everyone, favorite sports movie? Ooh, remember the Titans. Yes. Titans is my favorite sports movie of all time. Yeah. Third one. Okay. It's like a start, bench, or cut. I'll name three um, NBA players. So Curry, Lillard, Harden. Oh, okay. I'm starting Steph. Yeah. Bench Lillard and use him in the second half, and I'll cut Harden. He can go. Yeah. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm cutting Lillard because of what he did to Westbrook. Listen, <laughs> day time is always on time. You can't cut Lillard. You need that. <laughs> so the second one is NFL. We got Odell Beckham, Amari Cooper, Devontae Adams. Ooh, okay. I'm going to start Coop. <laughs> I'm going to bench Odell, and I'm going to trade Adams. Yeah, because I feel like Coop and Odell would switch one or both nicely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so fourth one. Who's your favorite music artist? So my favorite music artist of all time, actually, is between Bob Marley and Marvin Gaye. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also put Prince in there, Michael Jackson in there, obviously Beyonce, but if I had to my all-time favorite probably Prince would be up there yeah it's number one Marvin Gaye is a close second yeah that old that old school old school vibes they don't make music like that anymore that's why they don't (laughs) they use real instruments back in the day they don't do that anymore right (laughs) but you're from I mean New York it's like the method of hip-hop so yeah and that rappers that would have been different, but singers, artists, those guys, yeah. Okay, so then rappers, who who are you choosing? My favorite rapper of all time is is Tupac. And I know I'm from New York, but I'm like, but Biggie's <laughs> out second. Um, Nas, I'm a huge Nas fan. Um, you know, I love Common, Jay Z, obviously. I just I love rap music. Of course, everyone likes to turn up, and when you're right. in a club, you're not trying to think. You know what I mean? But when I'm like actually like home and like listening to rap and really listening to it, I like to hear music, rap music that makes me think. It makes me feel. That's what I, when I fell in love with hip hop, when I fell in love with Tupac, it was the Me Against the World album. And I remember it made me feel something. It made me think. Mm-hmm. And that's what I look for when I look for hip hop. That's why I'm such a J. Cole fan. Because when I listen to Cole, yes makes me contemplate like life and the world and it makes me feel something and that's not that's not to say you know when I'm like in the club future doesn't hit but like when I'm home I'm not trying to hear future like I'm not in that spot you know what I mean so yeah that's I like rap music that makes me feel things Mm -hmm. I feel like that's people have a different 
a mindset, at least my generation. They're like, I don't want to have to be able to think yeah. about this. Like, they this J. Cole crazy. Exactly. And I'm also a huge J. Cole fan. And I'm like, I won't take any J. Cole slanders. Like, but next one, when you're not watching sports, what are you doing? Ooh, like what am I watching? Yes. Okay, so I am super obsessed with Real Housewives of Anything. So like <laughs> Beverly Hills, Atlanta, New Jersey. Um, like I love all those Real Housewives shows. I'm obsessed with them. I've seen like every season. New York, like it is like my guilty pleasure. I think I like it because my brain's always working. So when I watch this, it's just like mindless. Like it doesn't, yeah. you don't have to think, you know what I mean? I'm just watching people like bicker and like right. stupid things. But um, yeah, I'm a real housewife junkie. A lot of people don't know that. Like I, <laughs> that's like my guilty pleasure. And like sometimes like um, my mom has seen me watching it sometimes. She's like, how do you watch this? It's just like, I, I'm, I love it. I don't know why. So funny. <laughs> but yeah, guilty pleasure. So um yeah real housewives that's my jam <laughs> would, would you ever go on the show <laughs> i feel like i've been asked to be on a reality show mm -hmm. my thing is, is like reality shows are hard because i feel like real, real housewives is a little bit different because those women um are pretty much very successful and they have a lot of money mm -hmm. so it's not like they're gonna be on there like acting a fool Right. You know, they're not going to be, like, throwing glasses and, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, maybe a show like that wouldn't be too bad, but I've been asked to do shows that are a little bit more, like, um, ratchet than that. Um, like, I would never do Basketball Wives or, like, yeah. Wives or, like, you know, I just, that's just not something that I could be part of. And then, also, you can't really dictate how other people act on the show. Yeah. And you go down by association sometimes. And that's I'm... I'm good. Like, right. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm good. I'll stick to the shows like that. Um, uh, Real Housewives that you know they're driving like Maseratis and exactly. And, you know, live thirty <laughs> million. Houses. I'll do that one. <laughs> that's your more. That's more your speed. Yeah, I can. I can go to brunch and argue about like what's better, Chanel or Prada. I can exactly. Do <laughs> um. So next one, if you could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Bob Marley. Interesting. Like Bob Marley had such a um, unique and just really spiritual and beautiful philosophy about life. Mm -hmm. um, not only was he super creative and just passionate about music and, and making music, he also just was passionate about life and passionate about changing the world and you know, he was a visionary and he was a philosopher and he was a thinker. And um, I think it would be really interesting to have dinner with someone like that and pick their brain. Mm. And he was so far ahead of his time, you know, fighting for revolutions and, and things like that in a time where a lot of people, you know, weren't doing that. And he was kind of the forefront and I and I want to I would love to have a conversation with anybody who really whose art has been able to stand the test of time like that mm -hmm. I mean Bob Marley was around the 70s and it's 2020 and you can still hear his music and to have that kind of um just longevity and to kind of have to have that effect on people regardless of their age I mean I grew up listening to Bob Marley 
as a kid in the 90s and you know my kids will listen to Bob Marley and their kids will listen to Bob I mean that's an incredible gift to have to have art that really just stand that can still speak to people and still make people feel something and yeah I would I would love to be in his presence that would be like I don't think I would leave that dinner like I would that dinner would be like hours long I would just be in amazement yeah that's so true that you bring up the the concept of longevity because you know you think about music now like am I gonna be playing Migos to my kids like exactly you're at a barbecue and you'll probably tell your kids you don't know nothing about right you're not gonna like play it like the the artists like Michael Jackson and and, I mean those are artists who stand the test of time and it's Mm -hmm gift and it's a rarity it's something that you I think the only artist you'll probably see outside of rap um I think Jay-Z has the the ability to do that in terms of rap music yeah um I think Beyonce is probably the only one who will really stand generations and she has some songs that are just so iconic that will probably stand but I don't think anybody else has that yeah Bay and Jay. Yeah, listen. They knew what they were doing. Power couple. Goals. Exactly. <laughs> so last one. Hypothetically, if everything works out, who do you have winning the NBA finals? I would love to see the Clippers win. Um I think the Clippers have I just I like how the Clippers are set up and I'm a strong believer in defense wins championships. And I think also with there not being a quote-unquote home court advantage, you don't have your home crowd, you don't have that. Um, I think defense is going to be a big part of who wins. Because offense, you know, scoring and things like that, as someone who plays basketball, it's sometimes hard to get adjusted to a court you're not familiar with, regardless of how many times you play. That's why tournament games, especially in the NCAA during March Madness, that's why there's so many upsets. It's very hard sometimes to play on a court that you're not familiar with. When you play at home, you know, you know every corner, every aspect of your your court. You know, like, how the light hits the rim. You know which what angle hits what. When you're playing away, yeah, you practice on it, but you don't, the feel's the same. The muscle memory is not the same, if you will. Yeah. So um, defense is a big part of the game. And I don't think out West... I don't think the, I mean, I know the Lakers are probably going to be the team that's going to come down to the Lakers and the Clippers. I don't think the Lakers have the defense to keep up with the Clippers. I think the Clippers have a way better bench. Um, I think, unless LeBron, I mean, he probably will, play, plans on playing 48 minutes every day. Exactly. Like, you know what I, mean? um, I would love to see a Clippers and Bucks matchup. I think that would be a cool matchup to see. Um, I don't think it's a shoe-in that LeBron wins like everyone thinks it is. I think a lot of people are in <laughs> You're upsetting a lot of people right now listening. You know, a lot of people think, oh, the Lakers are going to win the championship, and that's why LeBron wanted to come back and resume yeah. the season. I don't think it's going to be that easy, especially if every Clipper comes back. Exactly. I don't think it's going to be that yeah. easy. Yeah. Well, we shall see. Well. But <laughs> I always let my guests at the end put us on. So you can put us on to whatever it may be that you're into, a restaurant, movie music whatever it is tv i just started billions so i don't know if anyone has watched it i'm actually late to the billions club um i actually tried to watch it 
when it first came out and I couldn't follow it, I was like, yeah, this is not going to work. Like, <laughs> I have no idea what, what they're talking about. But um, I started watching it and I really have fallen in love with it. I'm already on season three. But even if you're not familiar like with stocks and things like that, which I'm not overly familiar with, I think the character development is what makes it so exciting. And I think Axelrod is such like a unique character. Um, he kind of shows that you can be powerful, but it's just so flawed. Um, so that's something I'm watching. I think also Succession's a really good show, especially if you're into journalism, if you're in a journalism program where you went to journalism school, it's kind of about a family fighting for, um, the rights to a media company and the event that the father dies and all the inner workings of that and all the shadiness that goes on behind the scenes in journalism. Definitely should check that out. Um, what am I, and, and right now I'm really obsessed with Trader Joe's. That's probably like my favorite thing to do during <laughs> is um, whenever I leave the house, it's because I'm at Trader Joe's. I'm, I, I probably buy stuff I don't really need just because it looks good. I even started following an account on Instagram. It's called Trader Joe's Addict. And it shows you like all like the hidden finds at Trader I'm Joe's. Good. <laughs> Love it. Definitely. Hey, Trader Joe's talk Trader too, Joe's. and it's not too, so. Listen. That's exactly right. It's way better than Whole Foods and a lot cheaper. So take yourself to treat <laughs> me later. <laughs> so very last thing, I'll let you um, let the people know your socials and how to reach you, where to find you, all that good stuff. So you guys can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Ash Nicole Moss. That's A-S-H-N-I-C-O-L-E-M-O-S-S. And also my YouTube channel, All In with Ashley Nicole. So that's Ashley Nicole underscore all in at youtube so um yeah check it out always posting videos when i'm not on air at iheart so make sure you guys listen to that too 3 to 5 p.m on iheart radio you can listen on the app the greek zone so um yeah so that's basically it reach out and comment on my videos and we can talk sports and things like that and i got you let's tap in with her she's doing it all so you don't want to miss out I appreciate you so much for joining and don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff to this channel. I'll link my socials below. You can follow me to be updated on all podcast content, but thank you again, Ashley, for joining. I hope you all stay safe and I'll see you on the next episode.